Hey everyone, um, I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Everyone, um, welcome here. So tonight is going to be a tad different. We're not doing a chapter. We're not doing a um, a kind of a topic. But people wanted a little bit of guidance. People who are new and sponsoring a little bit of guidance in um, what to do. So I figured I would just give kind of a informal little presentation that will be today and on Thursday of one possible way of taking people through the steps. Obviously, there's lots of ways. Some things aren't optional, right? Like if we say, well, instead of doing a four-step inventory, just say abracadabra and click your heels three times and your defects will be removed. That's not going to cut it. But as far as just how to and what parts of the big book to read, you know, different things work for different people. So I'm just going to present kind of what works for me. Um, some things first that, you know, I gave a talk yesterday on the chapter two whys. And before I did, I thought the theme, what I really wanted to get across to people is that you matter to God, that everyone feels like you matter to God. And I think when we're sponsoring someone, um, remember someone's coming around and yeah, you know, we're all, when we first come around, we're defiant and we're cranky. And, you know, some of us are overly submissive and some of us like me are like bulls in China shops. Um, but we want to make the person feel that they matter to us, that they matter, that we really care about what happens to them. So that's the first thing I would say. So it's not about, you know, um, take two food plans and call me in the morning. You know, I am your drill sergeant. Yes, we have boundaries. But again, Melissa and I, you know, we've said that people recover when there's two things, love and good information. If there's love, but bad information, right? That's not going to help. Then it's like a doctor telling someone with diabetes, take penicillin. They're not going to get better. And if there's not love, if the person doesn't feel safe, they're not going to be able to open up. And yes, it's 100% on them if they're dishonest, but we don't want to make it easy for someone to be dishonest and say, well, I was too afraid to be honest with you. We don't want that. And I would say the other thing is that um, before we take someone through the steps, we need to have gone through the steps ourselves. When I first came into OA, years before some of you were born, um, the way it worked is you did, you got 30 days and then you could start sponsoring someone. Well, in, in some programs, it may be 90 days and some, and I just go by what the big book says. It's like having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. So if someone gets through the steps in, you know, four days, okay. I don't know anyone who's done it, but okay. Um, and generally it takes, I don't know, we'd say aver average about two months, average. But when you're through the steps, that's the qualification. So before you even talk with um, a sponsee, just remember people recover best when they're comfortable. And the goal of the first conversation is to make a connection, to form a relationship. I call it like the Starbucks conversation. It's like you were sitting in Starbucks having your, you know, decaf coffees or, you know, and 
your latte or whatever you're drinking and you just sit there and you get to know each other oh you know so kind of find out what they're like what um what they're like and what they like kind of what their lives are like you want to relate to them as a person so they don't feel like a project and you want to tell them your story you want to tell them how you binged how you whatever um depending on their mood right the book tells us we're either lighthearted or we're serious depending on the situation and ideally we wet the person's appetite no pun intended so that she will say what did you do you used to binge like a maniac you used to you know steal food steal money for food and you haven't done it for years and now you know you're married you have kids you're functioning tell me what you did that's the goal right we want to get them to ask what did you do and then um then we the book says we give them a copy of the book and ask them to read it and then come back well that was the days before generally we're meeting people at meetings so they're a little familiar with the book so often um what i do is i give them a little something to test their willingness but before i do i may have um a conversation with them that goes something like this and to the newcomer who i talked to today and i didn't have this conversation with you're hearing it right now so i might start and say um it is possible to never ever binge again right um and that gets people interested and i can back it up i say right most people have seen episodes of law and order where a diplomat from a foreign country comes to new york commits a murder but you know benson and stabler can't touch him because he has immunity right diplomatic immunity he's protected he's untouchable or we can think about getting a vaccine against the virus right we get the vaccine so we can have immunity so we're protected now imagine us having immunity from compulsive eating being protected that's exactly what this big book promises us immunity from compulsive eating and then i tell the person once you open up your big book and read me the first sentence on page 89 so who's got a big book wants to read the first sentence on page 89 um oh, oh sorry Just first sentence. I can do it. Connie, oh, we got it. We got it. Leo. Yeah. Ready. Okay. Ready. The it. first sentence. Can you hear me? Just, yep. Just the first okay. sentence. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Okay. And then I might say, you know, we can change alcoholic to compulsive eater. Um, and drinking to compulsive eating by saying, look at that. Nothing will ensure immunity as much as intensive work. So if we work with other compulsive eaters, we're immune, we're protected, right? Like, a, like God has this like glass cage around us that the illness can't get in. Now, if it was as easy as all that, we'd all just go to one meeting, hear that and go off and help others recover. But there's a requirement for working with others. So Lee, on um, page 60, Step 12, may as well keep that book out. All right, step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. 
Okay, so we have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So it tells us we have to go through these 12 steps, then we carry this message. And if someone's new, they might ask, what the heck's a spiritual awakening, right? We've all heard the term so much, but it's worth talking about. So there's two pages, two, well, there's more, but there's two main parts in the big book where it talks about a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. And again, this will whet your sponsee's appetite. So um, Lee, page 25, second full paragraph, the great fact. Second full paragraph. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And now here's what a spiritual experience does. Go ahead. We have, uh, which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and our lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do ourselves. Okay, so this is what this program promises us, that the central fact of our lives becomes that God comes in and basically rewires everything. The way we think about our fellows, life, God's universe, just kind of changes the soil of our soul so that it's an inhospitable environment for the illness of compulsive eating. Pretty cool, right? You just do like 12 things and that's what you get. And then we flip to page 567. Um, Lee, if you want to just read the first paragraph. Five sixty-seven. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Okay, so this means the person has stopped eating compulsively. The idea that someone is better, right, has fewer resentments, more serenity, even though they're still binging, is just someone who's in denial. That is not what this program talks about. Um, when someone says, well, I'm still eating compulsively, but this program's helping me be more spiritual. No, again, it's like if I'm a diabetic and I go to a doctor, you know, to help me get my blood sugar under control. And I say, yeah, my blood sugar is still totally out of control, but you know, my sprained thumb is a little bit better. You say, Janet, you need a new doctor. We are after a spiritual experience. So how do we get it? Step 12, as a result of these steps. So basically what they're telling me is if I work these steps, I will have a spiritual experience, God coming in and like doing a renovation job in my soul so that it's an inhospitable environment for the illness of compulsive eating. And then I maintain that environment by working with others and helping them get a relationship with God. That's the job of a sponsor help a sponsee get a relationship with God. Or as my sponsor puts it, job of a sponsor is to put the sponsee's hand in God's hand. Okay, so that's our jobs. So after I go through that spiel, I say to the person, okay, you in or you out? And if they say they're in, 
I give them an assignment, right? It's just, instead of saying, go back and read the book, I say, go listen to a podcast. And I, um, again, there's tons of podcasts online, tons of good ones. I make my sponsees listen to one of mine because, you know, that's the material I, I've thought is most important to bring out. And I tell them when you're listening to a podcast, you don't listen like while you're vacuuming or driving, you listen um, and with your big book and you write down three things that stand out to you and any questions. I want them, you know, paying attention and that's it. I don't talk about food plans or anything like that. I just want to first see, are they willing? Are they going to do this work? Because if they're not going to listen to a podcast and take a few notes, then um, how on earth are they ever going to do a four step? So if I don't hear from them, I might send them one text in a couple of days. Like, hey, how you doing? Haven't heard from you. And then if I don't hear from them, I move on. So when um, what I do, again, is I say, text me when you're done. They text me. I say, great, let's talk tomorrow at four o'clock. We talk and I go through the things that were important to them. And then I point out a few things that were the most important to me. And I picked like three or four things. So I'm not gonna go through them all, um, but I just, and I end with the very last line in the doctor's opinion, where the doctor earnestly advises every alcoholic or compulsive eater to read this book through. And though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. So I point out that the doctor's last piece of advice is to do what's in this book and pray. And then I asked him, I said, okay, you know, based on now, you know, a little bit about me, you've endured a 45 minute podcast of mine. We've talked a couple times. Do you want to work together? And if they say yes, I tell them, you know, generally flip to page 58 and there's two requirements for working these steps. Not everyone who says, I want to do this is gets in. Um, it says, if you have decided you want what we have and what do we have, right? A spiritual experience based on these steps and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then I say then and only then are you ready to take certain steps? Now it says that some of these we balked. So balking or not wanting to doesn't disqualify us, right? I can make a decision to do something I don't want to. Um, but if they say, yes, I want this spiritual experience and I'm willing to go to any lengths. And I say, okay, at this point, let me tell you what my expectations are. Now, I don't think um, a person should go sponsor shopping, right? Like if I tell them, I'm just making something up that they have to go to five meetings a week. And they say, oh, you know what? I heard Melissa only makes her people go to four meetings a week. I think I'll go her, go there. That's not a good idea. And if Melissa knows that, she will likely tell the person no, because we don't, you know, we don't do that. So as long as what the person asks you is reasonable um, and reasonable means they're not asking you to rob a bank. Um, but anything that has to do with recovery, getting close to God, getting involved in the fellowship. Um, it's pro you know, we should be willing. And if anyone um, balks at willingness, I'll tell them the story of 
what I had to do, right? Um, so this is what I require, that someone be on a weighed and measured food plan that's texted to me before breakfast every day. The food, I, I don't get into the weeds of the food plan. I say, if you got something from a nutritionist, great. You pick from the dignity of choice. Great. You know, if you need one, I can help you. I say, you have to make sure you're not hungry and it doesn't include your trigger foods. And if someone says, well, I'm not sure if such and such is a trigger food, it's like, leave it out. Like real simple, like leave out your binge foods, make sure you're not hungry. Um, now, if someone shows me a food plan that's like ice cream, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they say not a trigger food, not hungry, I would say, you know what, like, why don't you go to a nutritionist and, and try and get something? But most people don't do that. So that's the first requirement, a weighed and measured food plan. And what's the reason for that? Is it like to be fanatical and make people's lives hard? No, it's because if we're not on now, and I tell people, once you're through the steps, you can do what you want, but this is while we're working the steps. How do I know if I'm abstinent? If I don't have a weighed and measured food plan, how do I know if I really had half a cup of blueberries or if it was a cup and a half of blueberries? So this way I weigh it, I measure it, I plan it, no chatter in my head. Um, then I tell them 30 minutes each morning in prayer, meditation, spiritual reading. And I might give some ideas like read um, something spiritual or devotional or something for 10 minutes, 10 minutes of prayer. If that feels uncomfortable, you can write a letter to God and you can start it with like, dear God, who may or may not exist. This feels really uncomfortable for me, but you know, just write an honest letter to God. That's a prayer. And then you can always take 10 minutes and you write back, dear Janet. And what I think God would say in response to me. And before you know it, your 30 minutes is gone. And hopefully we come to covet that time. Um, the third thing I ask them to do is make three phone calls a day to get involved in the fellowship. And I say at least two of them have to be to people in recovery, like further along than you and the other person, just anyone in OA. And I give them about a dozen numbers of people I know who are solid in, in the program. Um, and it's good because if I now have like a sponsee who's on step four and now I have a new one, well, then that gives these ones on step four someone to start helping, not sponsoring, but helping. I tell them how many meetings I want them to go to a week. And again, it depends on, depends on their circumstance. At a minimum, I generally ask them to go to a local meeting. I mean, especially before the pandemic. So we're involved in a local fellowship and I want them to um, come to meetings generally where I am so I can see them um, and meeting, you know, so, but again, I work that out with the person, the meetings. And the last thing I tell them is to help others. Look for ways to be of use to others that involve self-sacrifice. Um, making a phone call from the comfort of my air-conditioned house is generally, sometimes it is, but generally not a self-sacrifice. This is how we can tell if something's a self-sacrifice. By definition, I'm giving up something I want in order to do something for someone else. So if the person hasn't um, hung up on me by this point, you know, I continue on and I say, 
this time of working steps, which is usually six to 10 weeks. Again, some people a little faster, some a little slower, but that's the average. It should be considered a hospitalization period. And I explain it. And by the way, I think we wanna be careful when we go on meetings and just talk about like I'm in hospitalization because most people think that means like you're locked up in a treatment center. So I explain like, consider yourself like in outpatient rehab. When you're in outpatient rehab, you don't like start planning a trip to Disney World. However, if you know your husband and kids are counting on you to go with them to Disney World, you don't necessarily cancel the vacation. You know, we can find ways to, people can be abstinent even in Disney World. Um, but it's like, don't eat out if possible to avoid. Again, if you're with your family, you know, or it's a work thing where you have to, of course, you know, you don't lose your job over it. Um, you don't start a new hobby that'll take up a lot of time. I once had a sponsee and she took up salsa dancing right when we started working together. And she was doing it like six nights a week. And she said, but it really makes me feel good about myself. No. We can salsa dance later. Basically, we do our recovery work. We go to work. We take care of our family obligations and our hygiene. And we do enough exercise to keep healthy. And if exercise bulimia has been a problem with us, then we get an exercise plan with our sponsor just the way that, you know, like we had a food plan. So then um, I generally send them off with a dozen phone numbers. And I tell them, read Bill's story listen to my podcast on it, same drill, three things that stand out to you, any questions. However, if she is really struggling with the food, and I have to say most people, not all, but a large percent, once they commit to this and start taking the action, the obsession just goes away. Melissa, do you find that too? Right? Even before deep in the steps. And it's, I think it's like what, um, Bill Wilson said, right? He said, the moment I made up my mind to go through with these principles, I had the curious feeling that my alcohol problem would be removed, which in fact it was. And I have a note in the margin from Herb K, willingness allows grace to enter. So a lot of times people will just say, oh, like I was thinking about food a little bit less and they can go on and do Bill's story and take a couple days. However, some people really don't have, we don't have the luxury of time. They just feel like I can't stop. I personally never tell someone you need to get X number of days before we can work together. Um, I say like, okay, if the food's down right now, if we have to, we'll just start working right now because what's our problem? Lack of power right? So the goal isn't to give someone like a hundred assignments. The goal is to get someone their hand in God's hand. And where does power start coming in? Page 46 tells us with step two. So if I have the luxury of time, which usually we do, I tell them to listen to Bill's story. If not, they'll hear Bill's story at some point on a meeting, on a podcast, whatever. It's not critical. But what is critical is to really start diving into the steps. So if someone is unable to stop binging, here's just a couple suggestions. The first and most important, I think, do not assume that just because at this early point, someone can't put the food down, 
that they don't want to stop. Again, our problem isn't lack of desire, it's lack of power. Some people come in more powerless than others and really need to get that miracle even more quickly. The next thing I would do is see if she's doing everything we ask her to, right? If I tell someone make three phone calls a day and she's in the food and I say, okay, have you made phone calls your past few days? And she said, yeah, no, I made one. I'm like, well, you're not doing everything I asked. I asked you to, again, it's like me going to the doctor, him saying, okay, take penicillin for 10 days and you know, you'll get over your bronchitis. And then I go back and now it's pneumonia. And he says, did you take the medicine? I said, yeah, I only did it for four days because I don't like taking pills. Well, that's not gonna work. So make sure she's doing everything you ask her to. If she's not, honestly, under no obligation to keep going. I usually give, I don't wanna say a warning, but I just explain like, if you don't do the work, it's not going to work. So, you know, page 58 tells me I am not allowed to work with you if you're not willing to go to any lengths. And I give them a warning, maybe a second warning. And if they still say, yeah, no, I'm not willing to do the work, then, you know, we try and part as friends. Um, sometimes, especially pre-pandemic, if someone's local, we can invite them to stay at our house if our family's okay with that. That's what the early AAs did. Um, I remember a time there was a woman, she was she's either anorexic or bulimic, but she couldn't eat and she lived near me. And I said, come eat your dinner at my house. So you're not by yourself. And now we can always be on FaceTime. I had one sponsee and she was twice as, was really struggling. And I said, unless you're in the bathroom, be on FaceTime or Zoom with someone all day. You know, we just, sometimes we need a little more support. When we're in rehab, sometimes we need a little more support than others. So we might add the additional requirement that you check in after every meal or snack, just like shoot me a text and say, I'm done. Um, the other thing is check her food plan to see one, are there things on it that um, are trigger foods? And if there are, if she wants to recover, she'll be honest and say so. She'll say, you know what? Um, I don't know, peanuts are on my food plan, but every time I eat peanuts, I can't stop with one ounce and I eat the whole bag. Well, then let's get peanuts off your food plan. Um, sometimes though, a person's food plan is too restrictive. If someone has an early lunch and a late dinner, sometimes adding a healthy planned snack will, will really help. So there have been times I've asked sponsees like, add up all the calories in your food plan. Um, and generally it's not about counting calories, but it's like, yeah, see like that's only a thousand calories. That's not enough. So let's add a little food. So again, those are some things that you might wanna consider if the person is struggling. And so then if we do Bill's story, again, review Bill's story, the things in it that stood out to them, any questions, I answer their questions. Oh, and I tell them when they go to meetings, to every meeting they go to, to shoot me a text after, one thing they learned and any questions they have. So again, this keeps them engaged in meetings. They can't be doing their nails the whole time if they know that they're gonna have to ask, you know, write something they learn. I mean, then they can only do their nails half the time, but 
it's a start. So then um, we start working on step one. Lee, you got your book? So we're gonna start on page 20. Um, and I say this, I say, imagine this. A newcomer walks into a room, is told to admit she's powerless, and then told to stick to a food plan. It doesn't make sense. It's like a doctor telling someone to admit she has cancer and then saying, great, now that you've admitted it, now make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Big book doesn't say that. The big book says, once we admit we're powerless, it will provide us with a blueprint for finding and accessing power that will result to a change in our lives that's so strong, the obsession will go away. So the big book is really a blueprint that gets us from point A, where we're powerless, to point B, where we have power. And then I say, okay, let's dive in. Um, and I'm not gonna go through everything, but I generally start on page 20. About you may have already asked yourself why we became so very ill from, from drinking. I go through the different types of drinkers moderate, hard, and real alcoholics and talk about what a real alcoholic or real compulsive eater is. And then let's go actually page 22, paragraph four. We know that while, and let's change it to compulsive eater and you know foods, food terms, please. Okay, we know that while the food addict keeps away from eating as he or she may do for months or years, uh, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes a compulsive bite, whatever into his system, something happens both bodily and mental, both bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any food addict will abundantly confirm this. And one more. One more. These yeah. observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took that first bite, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the food addict centers in his mind rather than his body. Thanks. If you, okay, mm -hmm. we can stop there. So these observations, these observations about like, um, putting one drink into our system, one allergic food into our system. It says the observations about what happens would be academic if we never took the first bite, right? If the person who binged on peanuts never had the first peanut, then a discussion on what happens in the mind and body when you ingest a peanut is totally irrelevant. So it says, okay, so if that's not us, the main problem isn't the body, it's the mind. Because, and then I say, if that's all there was to it, the allergy, all we'd have to do is avoid the first bite. If it was an allergy to sugar or whatever, then all a person would have to do is like avoid the first bite of sugar. Um, but if someone can't do that, then the problem isn't the food. The main problem is in the mind, right? Someone who has like a, um, an allergy to strawberries where they break out in hives, they generally just stay away from strawberries. And so what happens to that person when they ingest a strawberry is irrelevant because they just stay away from strawberries. 
Or for me, right, I'm severely allergic to cats. If I'm near a cat, I'm liable to have an asthma attack. But it is totally irrelevant to my life because I stay away from cats. Um, now, if I was unable to stay away from cats in spite of knowing that going near them would cause me to have an asthma attack, the main problem wouldn't be the cats, right? The main problem would be the insanity of my mind. Um, so Lee, let's go to page 24. The fact is, and this is to me one of the most crucial paragraphs in the book, especially if we wanna help someone take a first step. The fact is that most food addicts for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in eating. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first bite. Thanks. So this is really important, I tell them. In order to take a first step, we have to understand what the insanity is. And this paragraph tells me that normally our defense against doing something harmful is our memory, right? Sounds kind of weird, but we rem like we remember if we put our hand on a hot stove, we get burned because we learned at some point it's in our memory. Um, what if a person said, well, I had a hard day at the office, so I'm entitled to put my hand on a hot stove or I had a fight with my husband or I'm mad at my kids. So I'll just touch a hot stove for a minute or this time a hot stove won't burn me. This time will be different or my favorite. I'll start refraining from touching hot stoves tomorrow. We would say that person is insane, but that's how it is for a compulsive eater. For whatever reason, um, mechanism that causes us to remember doesn't work. And then I tell them like a good way to understand this is to think about the connection between our memory and our conscious mind. You know, page 24 says we're unable to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of the past and therefore without defense. So let's break that down, right? Um, normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. And I think it's good, like if you have your own example, like I've got my cat example um, so that we have our examples to tell our sponsees. But if you can't think of one, you can always talk about your friend who is allergic to cats. So I say I'm stored in my memory were all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm about to go to someone's house who has a cat and um, I'm, I wanna go, my memory will grab the data points, generate a thought to run across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks, don't go. My memory keeps me protected. Let's talk about food. So when I was in college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. I'd always say I'm going to have one or two. You know how that ended, right? Um, so in my memory were all these data points of how I'm going to have just one or two, but I end up eating the whole box of 20, sometimes more. And so my memory, if I'm about to go to the store, buy a box of 20 and only have one or two, my memory does its job. It grabs the data points that say, Janet says she's only going to have one or two cookies, but she ends up eating the whole box. 
Don't do it. You're going to be miserable. You're going to gain weight. You're going to hate yourself tomorrow. Generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. That's why I ate compulsively, not because I had no willpower. I mean, I did have no willpower, but because what normally would protect me, what protects me from cats and hot stoves and Mack trucks coming down the street when I'm about to cross it, is my memory telling me something's dangerous, doesn't work, broken bridge when it comes to food. And I then explain, people wanna know how the bridge get broken. We say, we don't know, don't know, and it doesn't matter. And then it's like, how do I fix it? And it's like, unfortunately, we can't. We can't fix our broken bridge. Once the bridge connected to our memory is broken, it can't be fixed. So then I um, tell them to flip to page 60, so which is just 36 page, 64, just 60 pages from where we are now. I'm sorry, page 84, um, paragraph three. And I have them read that beautiful paragraph, Lee, and we have ceased fighting. And, okay. and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We seldom, we will seldom be interested in food. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards food had been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Okay, so I say we are hopeless, but 60 pages later, right? From page 24 to 84, just 60 pages later, if we do all that work in those 60 pages, we are promised a return to sanity, right? We'll seldom be interested in food, not on our food plan. And if tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. So then I tell them, um, to listen to my podcast on the chapter, there is a solution because I haven't gone through every single part. So they get another 45 minutes of what I think is important. And then on our website is um, kind of a one page sheet that explains the broken bridge. So I ask them to print it out. And then their assignment is to write two ways their bridge works. So for instance, someone might, people have said things like, I got a bad sunburn. And then whenever I was going to the beach, I remembered that and I put on sunscreen. And then I want some examples of how with food, the bridge didn't work. Your own broken bridge examples. You know, it's one thing to read it, but I want people to internalize it, to understand that their memory is broken and can't protect them so that they will need a different kind of defense. 
So I think um, we will stop here and um, we'll just pick up again on Thursday.